Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Rationalish. We're back, and I'm here with the winsome Eddie Matthews. How are you doing today, man? Pretty good. A little dehydrated, I will say. Yeah, well, you're glow-chotting all around, huh? I know. I'm in Swansea, Swansea, Wales, coming at you. Um, How many fans showed up to, to greet you at the airport when you got back? As they yeah, like nobody. Export? Not a single person. <laughs> That's because you kept it under wraps, huh? Yeah, our um, our British fan base isn't as big as I anticipated that it was. Mm. It's not like here where it's just kind of like annoying how difficult it is to go outside and. It's hard to it's hard to get into an American bar. Yeah, I will say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's not because you don't look. <laughs> not not right? because I'm overwhelmed <laughs> with fans, just because I'm eighteen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hey, this actually plays in well to the question that Drew wanted me to ask you. Okay. Now that you're like a superstar author, he wanted to know what your ideal pseudonym would be. That's a great... When uh, when you make it big time. My ideal pseudonym? Yep. Let's see. Um, probably Edward Hemingway. And then, and then people would be like, is there a connection? And then I'd like play it <laughs> off like there like there was but i didn't want to talk about it <laughs> mm, i like it I like and so it. there'd be this like culture of mystique and everyone would like assume assume i was related and then it would kind of put me on the map but then there would also be the backlash because it'd be like a nepotism thing but then mm. people would be asking for stories of my great-grandfather and then i'd be just kind of like vague and change the subject and then it would only increase like the mystique even more <laughs> just to pretend break down crying and then just kind of put your hand up and walk away yeah i like it yeah what are we talking about today well, we're going to end the pod with a discussion of a couple movies that you saw recently that I'd seen before, Jojo Rabbit and Knives Out, right? Yes, sir. And we're going to start off with something not really related to that at all, <laughs> but uh, about, we haven't actually done, I think when we originally started this podcast, we had thought we'd do quite a few more on religion, just because we kind of had different opinions on that, and we thought that might be something that would be interesting to talk about, but we haven't actually done that yet. So today is, I think, the first time we're actually discussing it's not exactly religion itself, but it's a theory to do with religion. Um, and an article that came out in 2017 that we're kind of talking through, if that's, if that's fair to say. Yeah, I think it's a good way to... I think this was a good kind of way for us to talk about religion in a more specific way. So, yeah, excellent. All right. Well, yeah, so the I asked you a bit. So I'm TAing a class right now about religion and world politics, and this was one of the articles from the class that I thought kind of was the least kind of theoretical, but also provided some good kind of graphs and a good overview of how the academic world views religion and debates religion. Um, and I thought you would be the perfect person to talk about this and see if you agree with some of the findings and how you kind of weave this into your idea of religion in America and Europe. Uh, but. <laughs> Technically not Europe, Europe, because it is as of today, you are no longer in the European Union, so we're going to have to reform our, our podcast. Are we going to have to work on any licensing issues? 
or is rationalists still going to be able to to reach the people of Europe? Um, I'll ask our consultant. Yeah, good, good. I don't want uh, any copyright problems, so we'll get into that later. Anyway, yeah. what do you think of this article? So this is the persistent and exceptional intensity of American religion: a response to recent research by Schnabel and Bach from Harvard and Indiana University, Bloomington. Um, I thought it was really well done. One, because it kind of clarified research that other researchers had done, which I think that uh-huh. as something that's just not done enough, whereas somebody will kind of, in the academic community, will carve out a tiny niche of um, the academic world uh, or of some field that hasn't been done before. And then it's, I mostly just come across that um, approach in basically carving out all of these just like multitude of niches mm-hmm. and then um, somebody just getting even more hyper-focused rather than uh, essentially like retesting or or riffing off like what's come before, I guess. Um, so essentially like this... Um, this study using the same data from the general social survey, but drawing different conclusions that they felt like the data was indicating that they didn't feel like was represented as well in this, in the initial um, article that they're responding to by Voas and Chavez and Hoot and Fisher. Nailed it. Two different studies. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's what I appreciate about it. Kind of like, overall and then it seems like they come closer to what the data is actually indicating than was previously um found by the other researchers whereas like the well let's talk about what secularization means in general uh, first yeah yeah so i think you touched on a few things there i think the incentives in academia which we can we've been meaning to have a, a more focused podcast about academia in general and just kind of our experiences with it. So we'll save it for there. But yeah, the kind of replication crisis that's been seen in psychology has definitely not only been seen in psychology. And and in large part, it's a replication crisis of under-replicating things. Um, There's a great comic by XCKD, the guy who, uh, he's an author, he's like a former NASA, NASA physicist, and he does all these comics on the scientific method um, I know it sounds hilarious, but you have to look him up. Um, <laughs> but he basically is explaining how s- statistical significance is reached in studies. And it's this person dumping out Skittles, and there's 20 frames. And um, in the first frame, it's like, no, they're basically testing the color of the Skittle versus, uh, I think, cancer or something. And it's like 95% significant. And they, he shows 20 different frames of different colors. And in the one frame, it's like, a significant result for purple Skittles. And essentially it shows a newspaper the next day where it's like purple Skittles linked to cancer. And the joke is that this is, you know, the 5% of the time, even with statistical significance, there's thousands of studies. So there's going to be, you know, hundreds of papers that are not done incorrectly. It's just, that's the way statistics works. Um, yeah. It can and be. so these meta studies are super important. Yeah. That can be really, well, especially because uh, it's not incentivized. Like replication studies are of just course. not incentivized, um, yeah. so like the like good luck getting a grant to replicate the study of uh-huh. somebody else who's broken new ground rather than breaking your own new ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, 
that term breaking new ground is like what what do we actually mean by it like are we actually making mm-hmm. leaps and bounds with all of these uh i guess quote unquote like new studies or are we yeah. just um basically uh doing what we need to do to keep doing it <laughs> rather than trying to get at the mm-hmm. truth yeah absolutely i mean we, we'll, we'll bring this up on another podcast if people are interested uh, but yeah for, so for secularization theory in particular there have been kind of a lot of theorizing in the past that really wasn't linked to data um, because of the separation of church and state in the U.S. For a long time, people were kind of afraid to ask questions about religion. So there's actually a kind of a surprising dearth of information regarding people's activities with regards to religion in the United States. I mean, since that's where a lot of this research is done, a lot of it was based just kind of on observable trends rather than any concrete facts. Um, and so the secularization theory is essentially that exactly what it sounds like the the United States and all across the world, the world is becoming more secular and less religious because of a number of different reasons to do with technology, you know, rationalism, um, everything from modernity to urbanization, all these factors that you can think of. Um, and the idea that eventually the whole world will have no need for religion and that religiosity will be reduced to zero. And so, yeah, I don't know, have, have you, has this been brought up in kind of your religious circles, the, this idea, maybe not in the same kind of academic hand-waving terms, but is there a sense that religion is on the decline in the United States? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think in the Western world in general, like in America, I think the perception of uh, Christianity in Europe is basically non-existent. At least that's how I've heard it talked about in American churches, where mm-hmm. it's just like, Europe, forget about it. <laughs> Whereas like, and then I think that most of the kind of s- studies that you come across that pastors will talk about in American, or I guess just in my small experience of the churches that yeah. I've been to in Cal- in Southern California. So it's like a small, you know, sample mm-hmm. set who who knows if it's representative of what are going across churches across america but anyways what from my uh experience it's been kind of talk about you know data quoted that indicates this kind of decline um the steady decline in churches and the kind of the uh, implication is to have more of like a rallying cry in some respects for um for us to like go and you know us like the christians in the congregation to go and and reach out to more people and yeah try to reverse this trend that's kind of what mm-hmm. it's implied or just to recognize that this is a problem and to you know think about it and share it with you know our communities and everything um yeah. so the churches that i'm talking about are definitely they've all been protestant you know uh couple have been nazarene which is like a denomination that started in la kind of an offshoot of methodism um they have a university right kind of lesser known a lot of impressive <laughs> graduates <laughs> yeah you could say that um and then another church that's i was never I, it's non-denominational but kind of affiliated with the calvary chapel church which i think is like vaguely baptist but um, 
yeah so that's kind of the and then so you hear this term like post-christian like oh we live in a post-christian society and you'll hear these data that are um quoted like even mm-hmm. even going to church with my parents a few weeks ago like the data that were quoted about like the central coast of california being one of the most post-christian places in america and what that means um mm-hmm. so it's said with a little trepidation but with more of not but not to like try to strike fear in the congregation but more of like a huh this is something we should think about and try to change yeah. you know so that's is kind it of kind of time. a call for more proselytizing or is it kind of just it's more like this is what's happening we need to figure something out or is it is less of yeah. a call to action more more of a this is what's happening let's try to figure this out maybe like okay. a like a it's like implied to proselytize i think but they okay. wouldn't want to be perceived as telling people to you know like go to door to door or anything like that yeah yeah so it's like a polite proselytizing i guess hmm, that's interesting yeah um so it's interesting i think for me to have grown up in churches and still go to churches you know go to like the church i go to in swansea is not all that different um from the church that i've been growing up to going to mm-hmm. you know in california and whatnot um it's i think borrowed a lot of um just the like protestant american christian style i would say um and so it's interesting because you hear kind of non-christians i was always i like i i grew up in churches that tended to be more conservative and you would hear non-christians like talked about in a in a way that they were lacking something like deep and profound in their lives mm-hmm. and so that's what you're kind of kind of conditioned to think and then the more and it, like most of my friends were christians so i didn't really have any like uh i guess experience or or to to combat that notion so i think i just grew up thinking that until I don't know, I got older in my 20s and I started meeting a lot of people who just had really deep, fulfilling lives and didn't necessarily have religion as part of it. And so the term post-Christian became a little less scary and less of a rallying cry to me because I kind of put faces to it. Um, But obviously I'm still part of a church and that's still the faith tradition that I very much you know unashamed of so i still think there's something deeply meaningful to it but the way i'd yeah. communicate the way i'd communicate that now to somebody would would the terminology in the in the message and the method of everything would be a lot different uh hmm. in the way that i would like express that than what um how i guess how i used to approach it yeah, I mean, I think that ties in well with kind of what the authors are saying here. That more or less are, and we can get into the findings, but the, the, the basic point here is they're basically saying secularization is not really happening. This is overblown. Um, what is actually happening is that people who didn't really have a strong affiliation with the church or religious community to begin with are just more comfortable saying that on surveys and are more comfortable kind of in public saying, oh, I don't go to church, I'm not really religious. The people who were strongly religious, had strong religious affiliations, has actually risen slightly since 1990, which is when these surveys started. Um, and I think that's that's fascinating. It kind of points to this underlying idea that a large portion of society 
is very connected to their church and kind of not necessarily needs this underlying religiosity, but has it uses it as kind of a cornerstone for their life. And I, th- I think their argument is basically exactly like what you're saying, that there used to be more of a stigma against kind of the post-Christian society, and now that stigma's kind of gone away. Mm-hmm. And so it's not necessarily a change in preferences, but more a change in public acceptability of saying that you're not Christian, or at least not affiliated with a specific church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it's interesting. They, we can talk about, we can talk through these studies and, and what you think it means. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that relatively seems fairly well. And you could see why that would be perceived from within the church as a decline, even if, you know, the church itself and the surrounding community that's attached to the church is actually pretty stable. If more people are willing to say, oh, I'm not religious, then it, it is understandable to see that as a decline as well. Yeah. So should we talk about some of these data? Um, So on, it's just page 688. um, (laughs) If you're following along at home, (laughs) if you're following along at home, there's this interesting graph where it's essentially like uh, shows uh, a decline of not strong affiliation. So this is Mm -hmm. uh, America from 19... 86 to two, 1989 to 2016 based on yeah. general social survey data um so no affiliation goes up almost doubles strong affiliation with i guess some sort of religious organization uh is mm-hmm. is right around like 38 percent, and then not a strong affiliation is going from you know like mid 60 percent to you know just below 50 percent so that's kind of like a like a slow decline. Um, so, well, yeah, I guess in terms of the, what the article concludes is that basically, in America, you they would argue it's not like the process of secularization is not happening in America per se because you have this like nearly forty percent of the country which has a really strong affiliation, and that's been almost entirely consistent for the last you know two, mm-hmm. uh, two, almost 20 years um but you do have more of um people who are more i guess like moderately religious just uh becoming more secular but they would say because of that kind of like base of strong affiliation it's it's not the same as what's happening in europe so so okay so a lot of the research on europe there's this Basically, the secularization theory is kind of a sociological theory, um, and the religious, they call it the religious economies perspective, which is what my, um, the couple of professors at my school um, follow and kind of write into. And their belief about Europe is essentially that you, you would see the same pattern if the, in, the institutions were the same as they are in the U.S. Okay. So their argument is that if you look at, if you take surveys of, individual people and you say how often you go to church and you judge things by attendance and that sort of thing yes religiosity in europe is really low but if you actually ask people in europe like do you believe in a higher power do you you know have some sort of connection to god do you pray the rates are actually way higher than you would think Hmm. they are actually like in some places just as high as the united states and so they call this the the god gap between kind of attendance of religious churches and services and actual belief and so the, the, the argument that they make is that because of the connection between church and state in Europe, there are a lot of countries there have specific sponsored churches. 
there isn't really an ability of kind of upstart churches and upstart sects to reach out and recruit. And the state-run churches who are kind of funded by the state have less reason to proselytize as well. And so there's really a lot less work going into getting people into the pews, even though the underlying demand for religion is actually the same. I don't that's, know what you think about that. You've spent no, yeah. more time in Europe, but uh, no, that's that's really interesting. I think um, the separation of church and state in America, I think, is an actually a huge uh, service to American churches, because Absolutely. I wouldn't like I wouldn't want the stigma of the like the approval of Congress, and it's not just it's the approval of Congress is like all, always seems to be like under twenty percent. <laughs> uh-huh. True. So like True. I wouldn't want my that's back church. for the brand huh? <laughs> yeah i just i wouldn't want my church affiliated with congress or, or with you know the government um yeah. in any way and so i um i can i can understand like people in um in the uk or in spain having like young people not wanting anything to do with churches that they kind of associate with governments that they view as corrupt you know mm-hmm it also probably makes it tougher to kind of reach new populations if you have a traditional run church that's through the state and kind of relies on state funding. It's going to be much more difficult to kind of innovate and reach new populations than it would be if you were kind of reliant on recruitment to support your church. So yeah, this is totally. part of the argument is that if you, if you basically have an incentive to work harder if your your allowance, per se, comes from the additional person you bring in than if it comes from the state itself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is is definitely an economic argument. We're talking about kind of privatization versus public institutions. Um, but in this case, I, I think it's pretty accurate. Um, and they, they've this theory has basically been tested across the, the world. And so these are the two rival theories is the secularization uh, theory and the religious economy's perspective. Um, and, yeah, I think I think it's fascinating. I think the idea that there's kind of 40 percent of people that are always going to very heavily want to be involved in some sort of religion is a really interesting finding. If you look at the graph that you brought up earlier, it's in, I've, I've honestly never seen an opinion survey that fluctuates so little for the strong affiliation. Yeah. Like the, the amount of variation is insanely low. It, it literally doesn't go 2% in any other direction, and there's like 15 surveys they've taken since then. So it's do you, do you think there's of. Do you think there's any correlation to be made between that and Trump's approval rating being almost exactly that same level, like I around thirty-eight percent. You can see. I, I think the parallel between religion and the current partisanship of the United States is a, a good one, unfortunately, because it has become more about kind of faith and loyalty than actual critique of policy and, um, you know, placing yourself on an ideological spectrum and picking candidates because of potential outcomes. Um, and so I, I think that there's something to be said there. The the Trump support for Trump does hover like 40% of his population. He said once that he could go out and kill someone in the street and his supporters wouldn't abandon him. And I honestly think he's probably right for about 40, maybe not that high, but for about at least 35% of his supporters or of the U.S., unfortunately, I think that's true. I think, I think they pretty much only if he no Only if what. he killed someone in Manhattan, I think, though. True, true. Yeah, maybe if he went down... It depends who he killed, sure. But uh, the fact that he could literally be caught on camera doing something horrible and that has no 
effect. I think the way they would be interpreted is kind of like, so what, he's our guy? Is, is a, I mean, there are parallels there to just kind of faith underlying, um, which, well, I mean, I suppose it's different in a way, like you're actually being shown that it's incorrect, but I think there's some, some sort of impulse to support. It's almost a, a cult of personality, right? Yeah, and I don't I don't mean to draw like too much of a parallel between those. I just thought that it was striking that it was almost like exactly the same in terms of the type of loyalty in the like approval rating and then the strong affiliation that you see in this graph. So like, you know, they, they might not it's not causation. These aren't like the same yeah, of pools course. of people. It's, no, 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 I'm no. just saying like it's like an interesting thing to to yeah. think about. Um so uh, here's a question for you. One of the the secularization um, e- explanations for the decline in religion and also even the religious economy's perspective says that the decline of participation, so actual attendance, is partially in the U.S. due to the fact that religion has become so intertwined with politics. And uh, like, while that appeals to some of the population, a lot of religious people or people that would be religious otherwise are kind of turned off by this intertangling, intertwining of religion and politics. Um, and I, I think that's probably true for a lot of people, and I'm sure it's probably true for you a bit, uh, that the fact that religion always has to be discussed in terms of politics is probably something that doesn't make it more attractive. Yeah. Um, what's well, interesting, like, in the UK, you don't see... Um you don't see the equivalent of like the evangelical right here. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you have strong Christians who are labor and Tory and like all across the spectrum, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting cause they're not kind of um, there's no kind of like uh, political force that can reliably be campaigned to that, in the same way that you can kind of, like there's no evangelical vote essentially over here the, yeah i mean it's strange i mean it yeah. wasn't always that way right it was like you know even 40 years ago the link between religion and vote share was pretty minimal and now it's you know incredibly high if, if you're an evangelical christian your chances of voting republican are you know much much higher than your chances of voting for the democrats yeah um yeah, I mean, I think there's probably just like a million things that, that, that that's due to, but it is a really mm-hmm. interesting thing. That's not just kind of like a given, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. But um, yeah, it certainly doesn't exist here in the UK. And I think that's something that, that you know, uh, one of my British friends had pointed out to me that I hadn't thought about, um, as the, as that they thought was just strange about American politics. And it was... They pointed that out like while we were in church, you know, <laughs> so or in yeah. church. So I, I mean, my guess would be I would take kind of an instrumental approach. Would be like the evangelical vote is just so much more important because there's so many more of them in the U.S. that it's for politicians it's worth the effort to try to recruit them as a voter base and to kind of you know say that you're going to basically speak for them in in congress and in government because in the U, in the uk there just isn't a big enough vote share of evangelical christians for them to really be targeted by politicians the same way that would be my guess yeah um yeah i don't know uh i, I default to uh your opinion on this one 
But, yeah, um, I mean, it's it's not no normative aspects. It's just it's just interesting the way that uh, religion and politics have played out in different places. I um, so what do you do? You have a theory about secularization and like the kind of trend that they talk about. Like, it's kind of a strange. The definition that they use in the article is um, the secularization thesis. The secularization thesis asserts that as a result of ongoing modernization and the advance of science, religion will become increasingly irrelevant in public and private life. Like, I just, I think that's a, I'll speak for myself, like, to me, that's a strange hypothesis because it kind Mm -hmm. of, it pits science against religion as if they were, like, opposing forces or antagonistic to each other. And I guess there's a precedent for that because you have, you know, you had a lot of like more conservative creationist uh, type Christians who were really resistant to evolution and to kind of like advances in science, seeing that as a threat to God. But then you would also have, you know, the people that would like annoy me of like the the kind of like raging atheists like Bill Maher, who's like, oh, mm. you know, if you believe in the Bible, you believe in talking snakes, and that's. Yeah ridiculous like you're an idiot and i and mm-hmm. and so like you can i can understand the fundamentalist christian perspective of let's batten down the hatches and and protect what we have because the from like just the the ridicule and like no one likes being talked down to and like i think that's that's one weakness um of liberals in america is that we 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 do seem to have this, um, you know, proclivity for talking down and like belittling people. And I think that middle America (laughs) had enough of that in 2016. Um, not to, not to say that that's, you know, like a good enough reason to vote for Trump, but I'm just saying like, there's, it's, that gets really, um, grating, you know? You're turning off all our groupies in middle America, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the heart of the rationalist audience. I know. St. Louis, Missouri is like an epicenter of fandom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's become, I think it, it's kind of cyclical, right? You Once you tie religion into politics, then religion becomes seen as a political thing. And so it's kind of attacked as if you're, it's like a, a policy almost rather mm. than like a belief system. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's a huge weakness of, of current Democrats. I, I think the strange part is even Democrats who are religious, which is pretty much all of them, even if they, I think it's seen as insincere, right? Are you saying when, like candid, Democratic candidates? Yeah. Dem- yeah. Sorry. Democratic candidates who are, who are like attend church. I don't think it's, it's definitely not viewed the same way. And yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about. I think I think pretty much all of the evidence points to the fact that you know religion will will never actually go away in any sense of the secularization theorists um, kind of this complete decline of religion. Uh-huh. I think it can go through ups and downs, and there can be religious rev- revivals. And if you look at history, yeah. that's overwhelmingly the case. To me, that's um, such a that's such a strange misunderstanding of human nature and like the human condition to think that like organized religion will just dissipate under 
yeah under some sort of like technocratic progress you know so like, one of the I things that understand, they understand yeah <laughs> like do these people not consume art of any kind <laughs> yeah so this is actually one of the reasons that um like kind of the economic perspective thinks that the secularization theory was developed kind of on false pretenses is this idea that they're basically saying not only is religion going to decline to zero but it's already been declining for generations that's kind of what it's premised on and a lot of people went back and said wait a second you're basically just looking at old photos and old buildings and saying look everyone must have been super religious when if you actually look at the historical record around you know 40 to 50 percent of people in most countries were the really religious ones pretty much throughout recorded history right it's just that the things that have been left behind and especially when it was state-run religions it was presented in a way where it seemed like we're expecting every single person to follow religious services and attend mass um when really it's it's pretty much it's been not constant since just 1990 but you know for generations and millennia so yeah it's, it's pretty interesting to think about yeah that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, and it doesn't mean there won't be blips and bumps um, in every religion. Not just, I mean, we're focusing on Christianity just because that's what I think both of us know more about. But uh, I think this is true for pretty much most of the mainstream religions anyway. Yeah, I think um, it's just, it, to me, it's like fascinating to, like, who knows how, re- like, I applaud the the authors of this article to try Dude, you to gotta say their names because they have know, great names i, know, I gotta <laughs> say their names schnabel and bach yeah terrific. like i applaud i applaud them for trying to measure something that's really difficult to measure and you know mm-hmm. like religious participation or like religious fervor like how in the world you know so they try to do yeah. it by uh you know attendance of church belief that the bible is the literal word of god um, praying multiple times a day. So they, they um, like, aggregated data based on that and charted it and everything, um, which is an interesting way to do it. Uh, one, um, one, and one actually, one thing that I found really interesting about um, one of those data sets was how many people in America attend church sometimes it's like above 70% or it's like mid 70% even like mm-hmm. it's declining over, but it only declined like maybe 6% over yeah. 50, 25 years or something. And that's like attending some, maybe that's just once a year. Maybe that's just a Christmas service, but that was impressive to me that, that, that signals to me that we're in some senses, like still a deeply religious country. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's tough. You probably have a better perspective of this being, you know, having, you're in Europe now, having been there for a long time. I think we very much view the decline of religion relative to previous understandings of how widespread religion is in the U.S. When from the outside, the religiosity and the level of religiousness that's expressed in the United States is usually like seen as quite an outlier in terms of developed countries. Um especially from the European side. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to continue to decline. It could mean that Europe is going to see a revival soon if laws become more lax on kind of the starting of religions and the funding of religions. Um, 
especially in the aftermath of kind of this populist uprising, I would think, um, kind of people wanting to find some sort of meaning outside of politics. Yeah, I mean, it also depends on, like, how do you define religion? Yeah. Like, that's a really complex thing to even mm-hmm. to even try to define. Like, it's a pretty simplistic and archaic definition if your only definition of religion is coming to an organized church, yep. you know, once a week and, like, reading a sacred text. Uh, I don't know. Well, so this is I, why... I this think... is why they think that religion has been seen as declining in Europe for so long because that's basically the stat that they use. It's like, oh, less people are going to church. When in reality, pretty much just as many people are praying today as they were 20 years ago. Well, I just finished uh, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. And there's a huge... Oh, humble brag, dude. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's been on the brain. Um, and a lot of the book takes place at... Um, like a halfway house and at AA meetings and Alcoholics Anonymous is the most church type organization that is that I've Hmm. like ever read about. Um, It's like more church than most churches I've ever been to, you know? And so we're probably not counting those types of spaces in these data and that to me, but, but that's very much a, religious group in in my estimation of how i define religion so that's kind of a i don't know something to think about as we're talking about religion and how we measure and define and you know use yeah I, I mean i think these the the intersection of kind of these academic ideas and religion is interesting because it points to all these kind of definitional issues that really do get taken for granted um where, yeah, I mean, the, is it really a decline in religion if you are attending something weekly with your neighbors where you discuss community issues and you go through and have routines um, and then you go home and, and pray? It's, uh, it's, you know, it's very difficult. And I think largely what they're getting at here is that the secularization theory is, if not just wrong, is at least way overblown. Um, especially in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. And, it, you know, it's good that we have a study like this to kind of combat more of the authoritative uh, study that came before that asserted that secularization indeed and ha- it was happening in America in the same kind of trend that it was happening in Western Europe. Um, because, what do you think about... Yeah. So I think, like, this... Like you say that, and that's good, I think, for the academics that believed in secularization before. Now they can be refuted. But I know you said you didn't, hadn't really heard of the secularization theory. I definitely hadn't really heard of the secularization theory until, you know, postgraduate education. How does, how should or how can this sort of information be disseminated to people that actually are interested in these things outside of academia? Because, this, I mean, this is about religion. This is about grassroots communication community building and these are the sorts of things that really should be tethered into some sort of mechanism for reaching larger populations um i think it's do you think that there's any way to bridge that gap or is it just too far removed no i think it's already being done like um how i would assume the pastors that i've heard talk about post-christian uh places 
would be mm-hmm. they probably read it in the New York Times and the writer in that New York Times article was probably quoting studies like this, you know? That would be really interesting to see the like pathways of kind of obscure information from academic journals and how they actually to track how they reach the people within the in, you know the industries of the sectors of society that they're talking to. I mean, we can save this for our academia episode, but yeah. it probably doesn't happen very often. <laughs> <laughs> I think we like to think that it happens more often than it probably actually does. I think, so. yeah, I think all of us who are in academia, we need to be really realistic about the like what research we're doing and the impact it's having and the people it's reaching. Um, introducing a lot more humility would probably be warranted if we were to actually get data on what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we should definitely do a pod on this because I think there's there's more material to be covered. Um, but yeah, do you want to talk about movies? Do you have any wrapping up on, on this topic? We, we, we'll have to do another one on religion, less academic focus and more kind of about personal experiences and things. Uh, yeah, it'd soon. be fun. But this was a good summary. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think this, like, um, I think you, you have, they, they measured biblical literalism as well in the, in the article, which I thought was really interesting, um, because that, I think, also in America has, like, a, a rich tradition mm-hmm. that is lacking in Europe. I think Europe, European religion has a lot easier time thinking metaphorically than um, American religion does. Obviously, it's a vast overgeneralization, but, like, Mm -hmm. enormatively, I guess. Yeah. Um, Or maybe the Europeans just can't think literally. (laughs) (laughs) That would explain why uh, the train was about a half hour late the other day. (laughs) They they were, like, 2.30 p.m., (laughs) You thought we meant that literally? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of interesting. But, again, like, I don't, I mean, I, I write I write fiction, so obviously I believe that metaphors are extremely powerful. Um, maybe, the, like, the most powerful thing that we have. And so I'm not certainly not scared of metaphor but i understand how basically the biblical literalists um can react a little bit too reflexively to kind of innovations in science and people proclaiming that god has been made irrelevant by by essentially trying to point to something that they think is concrete and then just cling to that, you know? Um, yeah. Dang, man. Is your uh, great uncle Ernest Hemingway by any chance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but also like the irony there is that they're, they, that's, that's also a post enlightenment response, like the yeah. enlightenment yeah. and basically mm-hmm. like they're applying this kind of like really rational, concrete thinking to the bible that was never supposed to be taken in a post-enlightenment rational sense 
so that's kind of the irony is that it's like as they think they're being more like devoted and, and really um trying to like defend the word of god they're using the techniques that came in with the enlightenment that weren't used by uh augustine or irenaeus mm-hmm. or like the early church fathers so that's kind of interesting to me yeah we should we should do another podcast on that because i think i think it's fascinating where certain sects of religion take the word of god because i think there's something that's inevitably powerful about the the true literal word of any religious text whether it you know be the torah or the quran or the bible I think having something that's the literal word is just so powerful because it's, you know, it, it requires no interpretation. You can all agree on what the, the words say depending on the translation. Um, and I think it's fascinating to see where things deviate and, and how things are adapted. Um, but yeah, I, it's a great point. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, let's uh, take a little break and then we'll talk about movies and we're back welcome back so yeah got to got to use the bathroom got to decongest and then uh, digest uh that wonderful discussion led by Eddie Matthews over here. I'm oh, sorry, Eddie, Eddie Hemingway. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what movies are we talking about? So recently, uh, when I first got back, I saw Jojo Rabbit because I was intrigued. Um, it's a movie uh, essentially about like a kid who's in Hitler Youth. And then, uh, I'm not spoiling anything here because it's in the trailer, but he discovers that his mom is hiding uh uh, like 13 year old jewish girl 15 year old you know teenager jewish girl Mm. uh and he's just like really thrown for a loop because he's a you know a fervent hitler youth nazi and then uh taika waititi who directed i can see why you wanted to talk about this on the pod now sorry (laughs) yeah uh taika waititi who directed uh bunch of stuff but my favorite hunt for the wilder people is definitely my favorite uh, so good so good like that's i can't picture anyone who would watch that movie and not enjoy it you know it's a new um, perfect movie for what it's going for yeah for, so anyways he directed this and uh, he plays hitler in it in like kind of a comedic satirical way which we can talk about which is interesting so that was Jojo Rabbit. And then the other movie um, that I saw just last night was Knives Out because um, he told me to see it and it's Ryan Johnson. And I really like the Brothers Bloom and The Last Jedi and uh, Looper. And I've, so I've liked all the movies I've seen of his. And so I'd give this a whirl. And I like a whodunit. So it's kind of like, you know, pitched to me. And so I watched that too. And I know you've seen both of these movies. So that we can talk about it. Yeah, I saw Jojo Rabbit a while ago, so I might not remember the exact details, but I we can talk through that. And Knives Out I saw pretty recently, so yeah. I, what did you think? What were your first thoughts? Um, Is it kind of two of the more like widely disseminated comedies? If you could kind of, I both of them, I mean Knives Out is pretty much more a straight comedy than Jojo Rabbit, but I would say of the movies that were released 
wide this year. These are two of the more mainstream comedies. Um, and a couple of them in the in awards discussions, not, you know, prominently played. But I think Jojo Rabbit was nominated for Best Picture, wasn't it? Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, I really enjoy jo- Jojo Rabbit. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a particularly, like, I don't think it says anything crazy meaningful about, yeah, yeah, you know, society or about authoritarian regimes or about 2020 mm-hmm. or anything. But I think it's a, f- I think it's a fun movie. Um, I just am fascinated that it got made, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, because you typically think that no studio would look at like, yeah, a, a parodic you know, comedic take on Hitler and, and sign up to back that. And I'm not... If not... Thor Ragnarok hadn't done as well, there's right. no way this movie gets made. Yeah, definitely not. Um, but I think the movie is a resounding success based on, you know, the... I don't know what the box office was, but I'm assuming it's been a success. Um, I mean, if you get nominated for Best Picture as a comedy, right. that's pretty impressive. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just got, like, a warm center, which I think is uh nice it's really funny like the i would i enjoyed it but i think i'd almost enjoy it more if it was more just like a pure satire where if it was because him and um the main little character jojo and that kid is an amazing actor yeah he's a really good actor his his little like pudgy buddy yeah is so funny like (laughs) yeah that kid has all the good lines he made me laugh more than you know any movie in any single character in a movie i've seen probably since hunt for the wilder people <laughs> the so, joke about the japanese was one of the funniest jokes I've ever so good in movies and, and so i almost would would have preferred or wanted more of like a buddy comedy where there was just those two kids kind of like navigating mm-hmm. hitler youth and 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 kind of slowly coming to a realization that they were that Germany was going to lose the war and, and having yeah, like a yeah. crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that, I don't know, maybe it would have been a little bit more enjoyable. Whereas um, I feel like the more Anne Frank direction it took, which was really like the core of the film and you know, it's well done. I don't have any problem with it, but it felt like well-trod territory. I don't know. Yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the comedy is, as Taika Waititi's comedy always is, is pretty pretty solid and spot on. He has a yeah a genius with... I think he was originally started off as a, a comedian, kind of in the improv scene of New Zealand with the guys from... Um, Flight of the Concords. What am I thinking of? Yeah, Flight yeah. of the Concords and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I think his his comedy is, is exceptional. His, his directing is, is also very good. I think the, I think it's tough... I mean, I think anyone would have anticipated it being tough to weave in an affecting story to the World War II aspects of a comedy. I don't think that would have struck him as you know out of left field that he it was difficult to pull that off. Um, I also think if this movie had come out like ten years ago, it might have just been. I would have maybe enjoyed it slightly more. I think there's something about movies today and TV shows especially where if characters act in ways that we that society disapproves of it's seen as like improper or 
like you know bad like a bad thing absolutely um, which is is very strange because really like that doesn't make any sense like we should be modeling people in movies after real people and this this is the conversation that comes from the movie should be about what you know maybe you can have conversations afterwards but the the characters don't always have to end up doing the right thing because that's not how real people are yeah um and i think that is is way not just on this movie but on a lot of movies recently this is such a good segue for knives out i feel like um yeah but so yeah let's talk about well i mean not not that we can't talk about jojo rabbit too but i think this is a good segue for what i Here's something that you might just surprise you. Last night, right? Yeah, here's something that might surprise you. I didn't like Knives Out that much. Really? I was yeah. surprised. I mean, I think, okay, so for the very same exact reason that you're talking about, like, yeah. people, yeah, it almost, it felt like Ryan Johnson was virtue signaling the whole time to me. And mm. I just have, like, a really, I'm just alert. I'm, I mean, people would probably think that you and I, this whole podcast, are just liberal virtue signaling. So maybe, maybe they think like we're just talking secularization out of our ass. is alive and well. <laughs> yeah, but I think that I think that that was a. It was two movies, and it was scrambled into one weird movie. Yeah. So there was like yeah, a yeah. movie about um, an undocumented, you know, like the daughter of an undocumented immigrant and like a kind of father figure who Mm -hmm. provides for her and like a positive influence she has on a family and then there's like a there's like a whodunit you know just kind of mystery Mm -hmm. movie and it's it's made into one movie but there's no kind of (laughs) okay so i mean and to the the original story not that the like if you had a story that was strictly about an immigrant who come out of this father figure and that was the story. I think you could do that well and people have done that well, but by mashing them together, it kind of, it's to the deficit of both things, right? Yeah, totally. Um, let's kind of back up and talk about, it. so the, the plot of Knives Out is basically there's... Um, there's been a murder. There's been a murder. There's... Um, <laughs> let's see your Daniel Craig... Uh, oh my God. but there's a there's kind of a a father of this family that you meet in the first couple scenes and he is a writer of he's an author of mysteries and he's a wildly best-selling author and he's got this kind of like publishing empire that um you know publishes these mystery novels Mm -hmm. and um so he's like a a multi-multi-millionaire and uh he uh, in the first scene, he's found uh, with his throat cut. And then just kind of like uh, speculation and kind of chaos ensues. So basically, there's like the FBI agents who show up and they interview everybody. But then a private investigator, played by Daniel Craig, uh, comes and is uh, interviewing people as well. And then the plot thickens. But essentially, like his housekeeper... Um, I don't feel like it's a spoiler to give away. They the, pretty much show you early on. Yeah. yeah it's I don't think so either. Very early on, the way that he dies is that his housekeeper kind of accidentally gives him the wrong dosage of his medication. And, um, you know, and, and is terrified that she's done so because she really has an affection for, you know, this man. Because, uh, or she's, she's like more of his nurse. She's not the housekeeper. She, I think, 
Yeah, she she was his nurse, but then she, she basically stayed on as like a friend slash nurse yeah. after. Yeah. Yeah, and and confidant. Um, yeah. And so she's terrified that she did this, and and he's like, he's like, okay, so we have I have like six more minutes, you know, to live essentially. And he's like, he's like, don't worry, we're gonna get you out of this. And, um, so they kind of concoct this plan of of how they'll make it look like he committed suicide, and so the and then. To kind of like trick the private eye and everything um or i guess the private eye hadn't been you know but to to get away because yeah. they don't want her mother to get deported and all the stuff and mm-hmm. uh, yeah i mean and then there's kind of twists and turns that are fun along the way there's a lot of like there's that conversation at the fireplace where they're talking about trump and they're talking about you know far like there's the kid He's like that the, sort of thing was so forced which is like a, the far right you, you point, know yeah. like troll on his phone and then like there's yeah. like the liberal kind of like new agey spiritual lady who gets on mm-hmm. her high horse and then there's like and then the and then Anna de Armas is kind of the main character she's the daughter of the undocumented woman who yeah. just um she's just a saint and I just don't think yeah. I just don't think like movies about saints are that interesting mm-hmm. and so well this is this is the problem we're getting at right like yeah so this is in, the kind in of connected... modern cinema and in tv you either have to be good or bad right well if you portray an immigrant that immigrant has <laughs> yeah. to be a saint right in this yeah. moment and i don't think mm-hmm. that's very interesting for art yeah. i just don't think it makes compelling art and it's not yeah, to say that and it's not to say that if you have an immigrant in your story you have to portray them, you know, negatively either or or as a round character or anything. But I just um like to to kind of like read um like I think I saw an art like a review of this basically being like Ryan Johnson skewers white privilege and knives out. I was like, what? You know, and I hadn't seen the movie at that point. I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then to see it, I was like, I don't think this counts as I don't know. There's no skewer. There wasn't skewer. I just don't. I don't care for knowing the political. I don't care for watching, reading a book or watching a movie and knowing exactly where that filmmaker or author stands on political issues. Like that to me is not. It doesn't make for good art, and it doesn't make for art that's going to last. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think if you can take away nuance from people, people aren't very interesting. Um, right. doesn't mean you can't have good guys and bad guys, but yeah, you, you can't have, yeah, angels versus devils in every movie. Um, so that, yeah, was, I, I think yeah, the that, underlying story was good enough and Daniel Craig was fantastic enough to make it a good movie. I, I guess really that's enjoyed. another thing. Like Daniel Craig was so damn distracting with his like, so over the top accent. Oh my God. Like I know he was trying to, he was being a ham and he was like playing it up and yeah, it was supposed yeah. to be fun. But mm-hmm. for some reason, because he, he did a similar accent in uh, Logan Lucky. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like that movie. I like that movie a lot, too. And I think it mm-hmm. works better than this works because it's so, like, unexpected. And he has, like, bleach blonde hair in that movie. And he's, a, yeah, you know, yeah. a convict and all this yeah. stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, so... I said no peeking. <laughs> yeah. And he just has better lines where I was like, here... I just don't buy it. I, for some reason, I just don't buy it in the same way. Mm. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. Talk about like on the nose, like his last like lines to Anna de Armas is like, she, she didn't even give him the wrong medication, even though the labels were screw up because she knew because she was a good, and it's like, so he's like looking at her and he's looking at the audience. He's like, because you are a good nurse, you knew. And it's like, oh man, as if you didn't get the point before, you know? All right. I mean, I think that 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 strand was the weakest, right? I think the the I don't want to ruin parts of the movie. Like the idea about the viscosity and stuff was was very, I think, super clever. Um, yeah, which I think Ryan Johnson is wanted to do he, in Brothers Bloom. There's some clever scenes in that as well. But totally. the idea that yeah, this has to come down to her being a good person, which doesn't really make a lot of sense because it didn't really have anything to do with that. It was yeah. more about somebody plotting to kill someone. Um, is you know seems forced, but I, th- I think that's that's the thing with the current atmosphere. It's it's much harder to analyze and view actual humanity, which is somewhere in the middle and in shades of gray. Um, and I, I think I see this. The most annoying thing I see is is not even like this. It's when things are like, oh, this character didn't act in a way that we would want them to in real life, or they didn't. Right. make a statement about a certain thing and you're like okay like that's not what the movie was about or that's not what this episode was about and that's how real people act um so would we yeah. rather have that for entertainment or would we rather just watch so th- there's this interesting i was listening to somebody talk about this i can't remember who exactly and they were talking about how um it's become a lot harder for people to judge like the truthfulness of of people's actions and sayings because of television. Um, and so they, they had a study where they had a bunch of people look at the characters from Friends without um, sound. And they basically said, like, what emotion are these characters feeling? And, you know, people are, like, 95 to 100% accurate because they're actors, and so they're portraying a feeling. That's their job. But then if you have people do that on real-life people reacting to situations, it goes down to, like, basically 50-50 because people don't react like they do in the movies. When people are happy, they don't always laugh. When people are angry or confused, they don't always puzzled and put their eyebrows in a weird way. Um, that's just not how people work. Um, and I think that's kind of more and more happening, not just with reactions and facial features, but like actual way that characters are acting in like literature and in movies. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because it's it's less realistic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why um, you know every generation comes across uh Camus the stranger mm. like I, I think that's why that book still gets read is because that I mean that opening those opening two lines of the book essentially like are the entire book it's like my mother died yeah. yesterday or maybe it was the day before <laughs> and and yeah. it just like that and the whole book's about what you're mm-hmm. saying like how you're perceived that you're supposed to grieve versus how yeah a person actually does and Mm-hmm. And if a person deviates from, you know, what society des- decides is a grieving son, you know, it's yeah. the fact that, like, we allow that in 20th century works of art, but don't seem to allow that in 21st century or maybe maybe post 2015 works of art is disturbing to me. Like, I don't think Blue Velvet would get made like i don't know i don't know like i'm trying to think of a movie recently 
that was was truly just didn't tell you what you were supposed to think about it you know it's hard yeah like there's so much like anticipating what audience reaction is going Mm -hmm. to be and then delivering to a certain extent like what that is yeah Um, paint by numbers is going to be less interesting in frames of art right yeah i just um yeah it's hard to it's hard to think about a, a movie that like truly like challenged that and and was uh rewarded for challenging yeah. the very kind of like expectations yeah, yeah. or like rules that we thought we were operating under well we can we can say we can talk about this when we do we're gonna do a pre-oscar short little pod so we can we can bring this up again and see how those movies fit in yeah that yeah. sounds good mm. cool. all right well I'm glad we're back. We're back up. I know the fans have been dying for some more content. So yeah, we're back on the horse. I know people really like the the DB Cooper episode. So if you guys can think of any more mysteries you want us to dig into, we can do some a fun one outside of academia and just uh, deliver some good quality, fun, good old time content. Uh, Indeed, give, we'll give the people what they want. Send them our we're way. We're not above it. <laughs> 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 All right. Until next time, man. All right. Adios, rational listeners.